This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for October 19th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. It was one of the most significant financial meltdowns since the Great Depression. In September 2008, President George W. Bush and Congress forced to make decisions to shore up the country's banks and financial markets. One of the factors was the collapse of the investment bank Lehman Brothers and the shattering of the subprime mortgage bubble, forcing the U.S. to spend over $700 billion. It was known as TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program. Ten years later, where are we? Could it happen again? Unemployment at an all-time low. Home prices are holding steady, but we have seen recent jitters on Wall Street. Author, professor, and Washington Post columnist Stephen Perlstein joins C-SPAN's The Weekly to discuss his new book, Can American Capitalism Survive? He also provides answers to those questions. Stephen Perlstein, thank you very much for joining us in our C-SPAN radio studios. And I want to begin where your book ends. You say, I've been working on this for 40 years. How so? Well, about 40 years ago, uh, I started as a business reporter at WGBH-TV in Boston. Um, There was an opening, and uh, I had no background in business, no background uh, in economics, uh, but there was an opening, and I so I started my uh, economic ec- economics education, and I've been following um, business and economics uh, ever since as a reporter, as a editor and publisher of magazine, as an editor at Inc. Magazine, and as an editor and reporter and columnist uh, at the Washington Post. I'm going to go through parts of the book and let you explain. You begin with the following quote. We are reluctantly reconciled to a system that lavishes $800 million in compensation a year, that you point out is $250,000 an hour, on the head of a private equity firm simply for being clever about buying and selling companies with other people's money. Can you explain? Well, that's a reference to a man named Steve Schwartzman, who is the chief executive of uh, the Blackstone Group, which is started out as a large as a private equity firm. It it's still a private equity firm, but they also are essentially a hedge fund as well. Um, they buy and sell lots of things, companies which they often buy at a high price and quote unquote fix up and sell at an even higher price, uh, often after loading them up with debt, but. Uh, they also buy and sell stocks and bonds and derivatives, and particularly real estate. So based on that, is there anything wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with it other than people like Steve Schwartzman believe that because the market has determined that he's worth $800 million, that he contributed essentially $800 million in economic value, and therefore according to people like him, it's theft if the society comes along and says, you know what, uh, we'd like to take some of your money and, and either give it in directly or in services to people who, uh, who have not fared as well as you have. His view is that he has a moral right to that. That's his just dessert. And what I would argue, and I do argue in the book, is that that $800 million depends on something. It depends on a set of laws and rules and social norms that we've all agreed to in some way. 
um, that allow him to earn it. But if we were to change those laws and rules and norms, and they do change over time, that the same market that he that that he worships so much, that same market might give him um, a compensation of six hundred million, or four hundred million, and. Um, that would be his just dessert. There's nothing perfectly objective, in other words, about the market's calculation of what any of us earns. It reflects how hard we work and how much risk we take and how intelligent we are and how much talent we have and we've, we've developed. It reflects all those things. And that's a good thing because those provide incentives. That's the magic of capitalism. But let's not kid ourselves it is also a reflection of political power uh, and social norms that are reflected in the rules and the regulations. I could change those regulations. I could change those tax laws. I could change those securities laws uh, in ways that might actually make the economy better. And they would make him have a lower income and maybe make his employees. He has 375,000 employees around the world and companies that he owns or controls. Maybe they would make more. And maybe that would be more moral, and maybe that would actually increase the size of the pie uh, f- uh, for everybody. So do you think, to put it bluntly, the system is out of whack? Yes, I do. Uh, when when we have examples of that, um, that tells me that, that something is wrong. When we have huge concentrations of market share, as we do in so many industries now with a few companies That means those markets are imperfectly competitive. Um, When we see certain companies earn huge profits, what economists call rents, profits and profit margins well above the average, that's a sign that markets are imperfectly competitive. Maybe it's because um, they've rigged the markets. Maybe it's because of patents that we've given them. Maybe it's because of laws that make it hard for other people to compete or give them advantage. Maybe it's because they use their money to get the laws and the rules changed to their favor or the elect politicians who tilt things in their favor. Um, We have to look at those things because incomes are a lot more unequal than they used to be, and they are a lot more unequal than they are in other industrialized countries. And so that's a reason for looking at it. And if we're uncomfortable with it, and a lot of Americans are, then it's perfectly reasonable for us to try to change it. We could change it, Steve, by redistributing money after people earn it in the marketplace through our tax and transfer system. That's one way to do it, and we do some of that. But in my opinion, the better way to do it is change the rules, the norms, and the laws so that the market itself generates incomes that are a bit more uh, equal. The book is titled, Can American Capitalism Survive? And with regard to the American worker, you write the following. We are now barely shocked when a company tells longtime workers their jobs are being sent overseas. They get a modest severance, but only if they train the foreign workers who will be taking their jobs. Doesn't that make you angry? Doesn't, doesn't that make you indignant? Well, it should. Um, and one of the things that we've been told by the market fundamentalists for the last 30 years is that when we hear stories like that, when we hear stories about Steve Schwartzman's $800 million um, compensation, when we hear uh, stories about bank employees who set up phony accounts uh, for their existing customers so that they can get credit um, for, uh, for growing the business 
um, in that phony way uh, as they did at Wells Fargo. When we hear those stories, we should be indignant. They offend our moral sensibilities. And yet what we've been told by the market fundamentalists for the last 30 years is ignore those. Pay no attention to those. You're being naive if you're, if you're worried about that, if you're angry about that. It's counterproductive. You need to accept those sorts of, of things that we instinctively consider immoral because they're uncooperative and because they're mean, because they're disloyal. And forget those instincts because if you do, the pie will be bigger and therefore your slice will be bigger. Um, and t- both of those things turn out to be wrong. Number one, for a lot of people, their slice didn't get bigger. And number two, the pie isn't as big as it would be if we distributed things a little fairer and more evenly and prosperity was more widely shared. And that's not just my opinion. That's the opinion of the economists at the uh, International Monetary Fund, the IMF, who are not known as generally a socialist uh, group of social scientists. And Stephen Perlstein, we are, of course, reminded of the character that you often write about, Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas, the 1987 hit movie Wall Street. Let's listen. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Chapter one of your book, this question, Is Greed Good? As you hear that from 1987, the film Wall Street, the words of Michael Douglas, what do you think? Well, remember, that was meant to be a parody. Um, The funny thing is that parody actually did become a sort of watchword uh, for American business uh, for a time and also of Wall Street in particular. Um, Let's think about that. Greed is good. There's obviously a germ of truth to that. The capitalist system, which is based on all of us trying to improve our own economic situation selfishly, um, that that system has lifted billions of people out of poverty over the years and continues since the Industrial Revolution and continues to lift people out of poverty. So this is a system where the magic sauce is everyone trying to do what's best um, for himself get the best deal as a consumer, get the best job as an employee, get the best return uh, as an investor. Um, And we need um, to have that instinct uh, for the system to succeed. But what we also know, and we know this from Adam Smith and from Charles Darwin as well, is that the system succeeds also when we cooperate with each other, when we help each other, when uh, we adopt an attitude that's what good for all of us is good for me. That's how the human species became the dominant species in the world, because we, uh, uh, we know how to cooperate in ways that allow our tribes 
to prevail over other tribes, that our species prevail over other species. And so we have a selfish gene, but we also have a cooperative gene. And so we know from evolution that we need to have a balance of both. And we know from experience that in a, a, a capitalist economy, a market economy, has to have a high degree uh, of cooperation um, and a feeling that we're all in this together. Because if you don't, then what you have is a sort of jungle-like meant, uh, uh, situation in an environment where it's every man for himself, and you try to cheat the other guy as much as you can. And we don't have enough cops and courts and sheriffs and jailers to enforce that all the time. When we go out and get a newspaper in the morning, I'm a little older than maybe some of your listeners, I actually go out and get my newspaper from the front stoop. Uh, in the morning, I actually get three newspapers from the front stoop, but they're there every morning. People don't steal them. When I go into the, when we go to the ATM machine, and we get the cash out, the person behind us doesn't uh, doesn't rob us. When we go to a bank, people line up for the tellers. People don't cut in line, and this happens all the time in business. If we didn't trust each other, to uh, we wouldn't invest in companies that we don't know who runs them. We wouldn't buy products that we've never tried before uh, from people we don't know. We uh, there's lots of we wouldn't work for people for two weeks um, on the promise that they will pay us at the end of the two weeks. We need a lot of trust uh, and cooperation in a, a market economy within firms, between firms, um, and uh, between customers uh, and suppliers, between workers and employers between consumers and sellers. And if we don't have that, if everyone always has to be looking over his shoulder thinking someone's going to screw me, uh, capitalism doesn't work very well. So greed is not good. It's not good for capitalism. It's not good for democracy. Uh, and it's not good for our souls. But you support free markets. Oh, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a very uh, enthusiastic capitalist. The problem is that capitalists are ruining capitalism. Let me turn to the issue of complacency and focus on one company, one city, one time period. Because back in June of 1998, you wrote a story in the Washington Post titled Reinventing Xerox Corporation, the City Rochester, New York. What were you writing about then, and what's happened since? It's a very good, uh, Xerox is a very good metaphor for what's happened uh, in the last 30 years. Um, Thirty years ago, um, well, let's go back even farther. During the 1950s and 60s, Xerox was the apple of its day. Um, in fact, well, we'll get to it. Uh, it was it was hugely popular. Uh, it's it had a virtual monopoly because it was the best. Uh, it had the best best product. It had the best uh, engineers, best manufacturing. Um, People made tons of money investing in it. It was one of the sort of nifty 50, stock, nifty 50 stocks of the 1950s and 60s. Um, and in the late 1970s, early 1980s, it started to slip as a result of foreign competition, Japanese competition. And it was going down fast. And Xerox needed to do stuff that was fairly brutal, lay off people, close factories, outsource work overseas in order to become competitive again. And that's the beginning uh, of when we needed to be a little tougher 
to, in order to get our companies lean and mean, and Xerox did that. Um, but what happened is that they pushed things too far because what also happened to Xerox is that um, when at a moment in time things weren't going so well, this is after it became a healthier company again, things weren't going so well, the top executives started to play fast and loose with the accounting. Um, in order to, to show that their quarterly profits uh, were high, and they got caught. And the company never really recovered from that. And Xerox today is a shell of itself. It's barely its own company. It's been sort of, they were trying to sell it to its erstwhile competitor, Fuji. Uh, then some activist investors stepped in and tried to prevent that. We won't get into that detail, but let's just say that Xerox is no longer. Um, and that's essentially, I think, frames the story that I try to tell in this book. The United States economy was uncompetitive. We, we needed to take some steps that were harsh in order to fix our companies and make them competitive again. And we adopted a set of ideas and a set of business norms that allowed us to do that. But then we pushed those ideas and pushed those norms so far that we now have an, a, a kind of capitalism that is so ruthless, so unfair, so unequal that when you ask young people about capitalism, a majority of say they don't support it. And that's what we need to deal with. We, we feel as if this system has run off the moral rails, that it's lost its moral legitimacy. And as I argue in the book, as many economists have demonstrated, it's also not helping our long-term economic growth. We could be doing better than, than we are now. The subtitle is Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. Let me turn to something else that you have written extensively about for the Washington Post and you touch on in the book, and that is the financial collapse of 2008. Let's go back to September of 2008. Here's what President George W. Bush said. I'm a strong believer in free enterprise, so my natural instinct is to oppose government intervention. I believe companies that make bad decisions should be allowed to go out of business. Under normal circumstances, I would have followed this course. But these are not normal circumstances. The market is not functioning properly. There has been a widespread loss of confidence, and major sectors of America's financial system are at risk of shutting down. The government's top economic experts warn that without immediate action by Congress, America could slip into a financial panic, and a distressing scenario would unfold. More banks could fail, including some in your community. The stock market would drop even more, which would reduce the value of your retirement account. The value of your home could plummet. Foreclosures would rise dramatically. And if you own a business or a farm, you would find it harder and more expensive to get credit. More businesses would close their doors, and millions of Americans could lose their jobs. In the final months of his administration, George W. Bush, September 25th, 2008, that was 10 years ago. And yet what is striking is that you predicted it. Yeah, well, I, I sort of saw it coming. I'm not sure I predicted it. Um, and um, that goes to another um, aspect of our kind of uh, capitalism. It's very much financially driven. It's driven by Wall Street. Wall Street calls the tune to a degree in our ca kind of capitalism, in our economy, than it does in other capitalist countries. We have a financial sector that is too large, 
um, that takes rakes off the top too much of our national income, is, is too rich, is too powerful, um, and which diverts a lot of talent um, and capital from the real, what's, what economists call the real economy, meaning the economy that actually creates goods and services. As a professor at George Mason University in Northern Virginia, what do you learn from your students? What do they tell you about capitalism? Well, um, uh, one of the things I teach out there is what's called an honors uh, seminar in the honors college, which is a freshman and sophomore um, seminar. And I always ask those students who are quite good. They could probably go to almost any school in the United States. Um, so what do you want to do when you get out of here? And I said, how many of you want to go into government? And it's, it, it really pains me that very, it, almost, uh, you know, there's 25 in these seminars. I'm lucky if one person raises their hand. And then I'll ask them, well, okay, how many of you want to go work for Goldman Sachs or work for General Motors, um, some big uh, corporation somewhere? And again, it's, it's unusual if even one person raises their hand somewhat sheepishly because they know that's not socially acceptable. So you say, well, what do they want to do when they get out? Well, they all want to walk, work for nonprofits uh, or NGOs, or they say they want to work for a startup, which for some reason to them is different than business. Um, you know, it's a lot of cool people sitting around, uh, in, you know, in a warehouse playing ping pong and creating software or something. Um, but that's what they want to do. The point is that they don't want to be involved in what they see as the capitalist system because they think it's morally grubby. Um, uh, they don't want to be part of that. They don't understand it, I will agree, but, you know, we should take that as a, you know, everything in life is a pole, and that's a pole. Some of the names that you mention in your book, Carl Icahn, who's well-known, and somebody who's not so well-known, Edward Conard. Well, Edward Conard wrote a book uh, several years ago. He was a uh, he was a partner uh, of Mitt Romney at Bain Capital, and he wrote a book which, to me, um, came to in one book said uh, and crystallized the the view that I call market fundamentalism, which is that markets should be unregulated, that if incomes became more unequal, that would be a good thing, not a bad thing. If finance became bigger, that would be a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, that everything that most of us find distasteful about American capitalism today, he says we need more of that. So that's why I use him as a somewhat of a foil near the end of the book. And you also write about money and politics, and you've written this extensively in the Washington Post as well. This one point struck me. The 100 largest political donors in America contributed more than the 2 million smallest ones. So, um, you know, Steve, something that's not exactly a newsflash, that there's now so much money in politics that essentially it's a corrupt system, that people can buy politicians, buy regulations, buy policies. And when I say people, I don't mean in general uh, ordinary people but large corporations and very rich people. Um, they, to a surprising degree now, um, uh, call the tune, particularly not so much in electing a president. That actually remains a reason. I mean, both sides raise a ton of money from big and small donors. But when we talk about legislation, um, 
that's where you see that the, the moneyed interest um, can push things through quietly that help them a lot and can prevent things from um, go passing that hurt them. And as we see in the Trump administration, they can literally buy a department or agency. They can get someone who works for them to be appointed to run these things. And it's happening all the time now. I know what you state is obvious, but it also is discouraging. Well, it is discouraging. And um, as as in often is the case in these books, you have to write a last chapter that says, okay, smart guy, if you if you think you know what uh, what's wrong, tell us w- how to fix it. So I have some ideas. Um, but the first idea, which actually has very little to do with the rest of the book, but has to do with all the solutions, is get money out of politics, pass a constitutional amendment that allows Congress to put reasonable limits uh, on campaign contributions and campaign spending. Why is that important? Because if you don't pass that, nothing else gets done. But as you know, they tried that in the Buckley case, and they came back with the argument of First Amendment free speech. No, no. I'm saying you have to pass a constitutional amendment now because the courts have ruled, I think incorrectly, but they have ruled that donations are free speech and that corporations for this purpose are persons and therefore they're, they, they're entitled to the same rights as a person. Um, well, having, having determined that, the only way around it uh, at this point and with the Supreme Court composed as it is now uh, is a constitutional amendment. And I think you would find that if if a party, and it would probably be the Democratic Party, put this first on their list, the, the corruption of the system, and, and, and made that the centerpiece of everything they do. Um, people support this idea, by the way. It's not like it's an unpopular idea. I think you could get a constitutional amendment passed. Let me conclude with two final points that are in the summary of your book, and one is our education system and the lessons from Brown v. Board of Education. So in 1954, the Supreme Court did rule that it violated the Constitution to give black children a separate but equal uh, education in separate schools. Um, That separate was inherently unequal. I think we now need a similar Brown versus Board ruling as it relates not to race discrimination, but to class discrimination. It doesn't work to set up a public education system, I'm talking K through 12, based on um, existing political geography, school districts, and existing uh, funding mechanism for local schools, which is the property tax. It doesn't make sense to put all the poor kids and concentrate them uh, in in the same schools. Um, What happens is they don't do well. Okay, and we know this. And social science knows something different, that when you put poor kids in schools that have a, you know, have a majority of kids who are middle class and above, they do well. And the opposite is true. If you take a kid from a rich household and put him in a school that is all disproportionately poor, he doesn't do so well. In fact, and uh, this sounds a little statistical, but just think about it for a minute, um, the socioeconomic background of the other students in a student's class are a better predictor of that student's economic success than that student's own family socioeconomic conditions. In other words, it's important 
it's more important who you go to school with in terms of their family background than your own family background. And what that means is we need to go to a system where things are, classes are mixed up in the school some way. And I think we can do this by drawing larger school districts, giving people a choice of what schools to do, using lots of magnet schools, and funding those schools with a statewide tax. It could be a statewide property tax, but basically having the the money go equally to all students wherever they happen to choose to go to school and giving them lots of choices. And that can be done in a public school setting um, or it can be done with charter schools or some combination of them. Which goes to your final point that we need, in your words, a new framework, a new vocabulary for economic justice. Yeah, you know... I've been doing this a long time, and over recent years, I've noticed that the conversation that we've had about economic policy and economics is, is has almost become exclusively arguments about, you know, income shares and tax rates um, and tariffs, and it's not enough about things like justice and cooperation and community. We've allowed the vocabulary of economics to take over our discussion of these issues that go well beyond economics and are social, moral, and political. And I think the beginning of of getting better policies, the beginning of getting a better kind of capitalism, is to change the way we frame the questions and the vocabulary we use to talk about it. Professor at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, columnist for The Washington Post, and his latest book, Can American Capitalism Survive? Stephen Perlstein, we thank you for stopping by. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners on C-SPAN Radio and the free C-SPAN Radio podcast, thanks for being with us. 